Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Greetings, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Weekly Mormon News Roundup, where Sophronia and D-Days are going to ruminate on the great and spacious beehive. Today is March 19, 2023. We have Sophronia co-hosting. We're going to talk about a general conference talk, gendered analysis, uh, President Nelson wins the Gandhi King Mandela Peace Prize, and Mormon Women's History Cruise announcement. Now, if you want to get in touch with your humble hosts, you can come on over to mormonnewsroundup.org. That's www.mormonnewsroundup.org. Or you can send us an email to colob at mormonnewsroundup.org. Now, uh, Sophronia, welcome to the Mormon News Roundup. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, it's tremendous. And now you are a general authority tier level Patreon supporter. What made you want to support this podcast? Well, I like it. Um, I noticed that I was listening to it every week. I love the tea that is spilled on this podcast and I want it to continue. So I supported it. Well, we greatly appreciate that. And uh, we have already previously sustained you um, as part of the common consent. So you don't have to worry about that. Uh, <laughs> I know most general authorities don't worry about being sustained, but um, we believe in following uh, Doctrine and Covenants Section 26, which is the law of common consent. So that's okay. important to us. So you can you can rest easy about that. Okay. Now, I'll you, well <laughs> now you have a manuscript. Uh, you're a budding author, I understand, well, that you're looking I to publish. Uh, what's, that, have... what's that all about? So I wrote a novel, uh, fiction. It's upmarket fiction, which is book club fiction. It seems to be pretty popular with women so far with my beta readers. Uh, but it's um, fast paced compelling story. It's modern day Mormonism. It's kind of a peek behind the curtain for those that are never have never been in our faith and those that have been in the faith um, do enjoy it as well. And so it just kind of goes into a woman's perspective and a deconstruction. It's a dual timeline uh, set in the 1990s and present day. And um, I'm hoping to get an agent. I'd love to get a literary agent and get this baby published, but it's it was a fun project. This podcast is um, supported by our sponsor is Signature Books. So, uh, you know, after this podcast, let's uh, see if we can get you introduced to uh, Devery Anderson, who we've had on the program before. I know that he's interested in a lot of manuscripts, especially by women. And so um, we'll see what we can do for you. If there's anyone out there who's uh, interested in um, interested in your manuscript, then um, you can send us an email and we'll get you connected up with Sophronia. Does that sound like a good plan? That sounds great. Thank you. Wonderful. Now, is there anything else about your uh, personal life or religious beliefs that you want to share before we get going? Um, well, I've been, this is my, I'm now going on my second year outside of the faith and I'm really loving this post-Mormon, uh, place and this is my first podcast. So. Well, we're so glad that you're here. Now, Al couldn't be here this week. He had something that came up and I'm sure he'll be on here next week, but, uh, it's a pleasure having you on and, um, not to put you in the hot seat, but I understand that you do have the Mormon news roundup joke of the week. I do. I do. How do you stop a Mormon from drinking all of your beer? Hmm. Don't know. Invite a second Mormon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Because they tend to watch each other. They do. And they're going to. They it's that yeah, whole they... missionary companion thing. Yeah. 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 Now that's a good one. Now that's great. Yeah. So, uh, hey, we are, are. Let's jump into our news articles. And these are all linked into our show notes here. If you come on over to Anchor, we put this uh, podcast out on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on um, Anchor and a couple of different uh, places. And you can see the complete show notes there if you uh, if you care to uh, follow along. Now, this first article here, uh, the church made a, a lot of news this week by um, and this is from thehill.com. And this was published on March 15th, uh, uh, March 15, 2023. The title of the article is Mormon Church to Make Massive 
water contribution to the Great Salt Lake. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has agreed to part with a massive amount of water to help replenish the dwindling Great Salt Lake. So they're going to donate, the church is going to donate 5,700 water shares that it holds in the North Point Consolidated Irrigation Company to the state. They're just going to gift that over to the state. And that's a very magnanimous gesture considering the fact that the church is the largest private holder of uh, water rights in the state and that the Great Salt Lake has been in a great deal of peril as far as, um, you know, with global warming and as far as shrinking surface area. And um, uh, this is going to be a great boon to the Great Salt Lake. How do you feel about this article here, Sophronia? I think it's great. I think they should do this. And I think it's wonderful that they are doing it. I do question the timing. Um, I think it's highly coincidental that it's off trying to offset the SEC. But whatever, if, you know, if that's the motivation that's needed, fine. But I, I, I think that's the only reason they're doing it. Yeah, so you think with the unflattering SEC fine, which just happened last month, that they're trying to find a pl uh, some uh, positive press um, in order to take the spotlight off of there? I think so. I think so. The best way to bury uh, negative reviews is to put some positive ones in there. So, yeah. One of the presiding bishops there, uh, Bishop uh, W. Christopher Waddell, said the Great Salt Lake and the ecosystem that depends on it are so important. And the church wants to be part of the solution because we all have a responsibility to care for and be good stewards of the natural resources that God has given us. How do you feel about Bishop Christopher Waddell and his comment here? Do you want me to tell my history? Now, I understand yeah. that uh, you're very familiar with uh, the presiding bishop uh, here, uh, Bishop uh, Christopher Waddell. I am. I used to babysit for him a long time ago. Um, and should I tell you more or do you want to see there? Yeah, sure. So he he was once, once upon a time, a male model. And wow. he played volleyball for San Diego State University. And um, he kind of moonlighted as a, as a model. I think it was just pretty benign stuff, catalogs, things like that. Um, but it was kind of and interesting. You, and you used to be his babysitter. I was his babysitter. And the only reason I know wow. about the modeling thing um, was because I modeled as a teenager. And when I started doing it, I was telling him about it. And he gave me advice and, you know, it's show up, explain, you know, how the interview process is critical. I mean, I was a kid, but and kind of some runway pointers and things like that, which is kind of funny. But he was a nice guy. I liked babysitting for him. His wife was lovely. But um, wow. yeah, he was a financial guy then, too, though. I remember him working for Merrill Lynch. Wow, seems like he's got all of the boxes checked. Yes, That's for sure. <laughs> I don't even have a quarter of the resume that he does. That's for sure. But <laughs> it's uh, interesting that you, you and him go way back. So that I, th I thought yeah. that was pretty cool. Yeah, our next article here is the church removes. Uh, excuse me, that the church put out a new gospel topics essay. Now, the church has not put out a gospel topics essay since 2013-2014 uh, when they put out, I believe it was 13 or 14 gospel topics essays. And Sophronia, what, first of all, what are the gospel topics essays? Uh, the Great Barrett's, the Landmines, whatever you want to call them. I think uh, the gospel topics essays are the, the key items that people lose their faith over. And so they kind of have to have an explanation. Um, at least mm -hmm. that's been my understanding of it. That's been my point of view of it. And to me, the fact that they put one out on finances is a huge tell. Uh, I think the critical mass is starting to discuss it. And it seems to be those are the only topics for an essay or the things that people are willing to break their silence and express disappointment in. Yeah, they attempt to address the most controversial Mormon items, right? Oh, definitely. Yes. And, yeah. and they, they are uh, in... in the content is 
controversial too. I mean, the just shy of her 15th birthday, you know, things like that. Um, and then also, as far as the priesthood ban, there isn't an apology in there. It's it, they're all very, they're carefully constructed and reviewed and um, well, well worded. Uh, every word is with a fine tooth comb. So that I think gives an air of suspicion to the public as well. But yeah. Yeah. Now it's been 10 years since a new gospel topics essay was dropped. And these are typically done without any fanfare whatsoever. There's no press releases. There are no nothing. You just, they just show up in kind of an obscure area of the church's website. Why do you suppose that the new gospel topics essay, which is on church finances, just dropped this last week? SCC. So no time like the present. You know, it's interesting. The gospel topics essays, you said they're 10 years old. I found out about them two years ago. And I used to be wow. a director of public affairs, too, within my state. And I didn't know about them. Yeah, they're not highly advertised. They're never really referenced in general conference. And even some bishops and other uh, senior church leaders, you know, they they weren't aware of them themselves. It was basically only, in my mind, the Gospel Topics essays were only for people who were really trying to find those things on the church's website. Um, so it's, it's you know, I, I'm not surprised that, uh, that you didn't know about them because they were not rolled out with a lot of fanfare. Now, the first section of this uh, new Gospel Topics essay on church finances discusses a great deal about Joseph Smith and his uh, finances and how he comported himself, especially in the Kirtland time frame, which was uh, run up to that uh, Kirtland Safety Society um, scandal, which took place in November of 1833. Uh, could you read that first uh, uh, quote that we have there for that Gospel Topics essay? I'd be happy to. Joseph Smith followed revelation as well as then current business models for financing these important endeavors. Now, how do you feel about the wording of Joseph Smith and the Kirtland Safety Society, which he, um, you know, founded as an basically as an anti-bank and then it went bankrupt and a lot of people lost a lot lost of money. Their money. Mm -hmm. um, I think you are oversimplifying a, a big issue. It, it, it basically it failed when there was a run on the bank in 1837, and we, actually we've had in this last that's, last week we've had two banks in here in the United States that have also failed. Um, the, the run on the bank here, the Silicon Valley Bank and that other bank as well. So it's it's incredible how cyclical these new cycles are. But in the aftermath, Joseph Smith was fined for running an illegal bank, um, which to me sounds oddly familiar considering what happened in the SEC here just a couple of weeks ago. Now Smith, uh, Joseph Smith, he was named in 17 lawsuits. Um, in particular, totaling over thirty thousand um, dollars with debts that were incurred in these, and some of these, uh, some of these never he never paid out. Some of them he did, some of them he didn't. And in fact, Nauvoo itself was financed on a great deal of debt as well. So Joseph Smith and his finances, to put it mildly, I don't think that he was a financial wizard. Is that is that pretty is that a pretty safe statement? Uh, yes, I, I would concur with that definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, it, it took the church really 186 years for them to talk about Kirtland Safety Society. Um, when now, if you look in the Gospel Topics essay, did they talk about the Enzyme Peak and the SEC fine there, Sophronia? No, mysteriously, it, it didn't quite make the cut. Hmm, that's that's hmm. Uh, that's interesting. Now, if it yeah. took them 186 years to talk about Kirtland, how long do you think it's going to take before we get uh, something that talks more in depth about Enzyme Peak? Another well, 186? I think, probably, I think in. 2020, or no, not 20, 2209. Then we can look forward to seeing that in there. 
Yeah, uh, unbelievable. Now, there's another section. There's a uh, there's a couple of different sections of this. And uh, the church faced the financial difficulties in Kirtland in 1837. The church faced a great deal of financial difficulties due to the Edmunds Tucker Act in 1890, with uh, the federal government seizing a number of church assets and uh, tithing in particular in the 1890s. And then the church again faced financial difficulties in 19 in the late 1950s when President McKay really overspent on the church uh, uh, church building program. And um, could you uh, read that section that talks about the uh, church uh, finance uh, financial difficulties in the late 1850s? Yes. After 1959, auditors presented in general conference only the results of an annual general audit, assuring the public that leaders had followed financially responsible procedures and dealt honestly in their use of church funds. How do you feel about that statement? I really did laugh when I read that. And so I think that's interesting that, um, you know, they took it away, stopped doing it because it made them look bad because they were debt and now they don't disclose it because it makes them look bad for the wealth and it's just no matter what we're just not allowed to know that it's a need yeah. to know basis yeah. and we don't need to know yeah it's inc it's incredible the need to know is apparently only seven people uh were familiar with the holdings of enzyme peak that's the presiding bishop right including your babysitter um no i was bishop his Waddell. babysitter oh, yeah, i'm yeah. sorry babysit <laughs> eve Baby City, I guess, is the. Yes, I watched his children. Yes. Right. He he knew about it, but he didn't tell you apparently, right? He, no, uh, and I actually haven't been in touch with him since I was a teenager. Oh. So yeah. Right. Yeah. So the church used to release back before from the period all the way up until 1959. The church used to say, you know, uh, give in-depth analysis of how much tithing receipts are coming in, uh, church expenditures. Um, we know a lot more about church finances before um, 1960 when the church was in debt. But the, after the church got out of debt, you pointed out, Sophronia, the irony is that they didn't release the finances from the 60s on because the church was in debt and it would have looked bad. But they didn't release any finances once the church was in very, very good shape because it would also look bad that they had so much wealth that they weren't putting to any substantial use. Is that basically what I'm getting from you? Yes, definitely. Uh, absolutely. Now, there's a lot of things that are missing from this essay. No mention of Ensign <laughs> Peak. No church annual budget, no tithing donations. How much are we bringing in and tithing every year? The SEC yeah. fine is completely absent. What are some other things that are missing from this uh, essay on church finances? Uh, there aren't the 13 shell companies. Um, right. Why the church used to be transparent and why they're not now. Uh, the yeah. salaries for general authorities for all church employees. There are a number of church employees. Uh, the sure. church budget. Do you want to read the rest or do you want me to go through? Yeah, okay. I mean, yeah, there's a lot. That's, the amount that's missing on this essay is really substantial. I mean, why the church hid Ensign Peak for 22 years? That's not in there. Why well, the church and concept also of how tithing. Yeah, the concept of tithing has changed dramatically. So, right. And I that's mean, not in there. It's it's changed dramatically even within the church. I mean, it really used to be on um, surplus and not. Um, as a 10% annual of interest annually. It used to just really be on the surplus. And why it differs so differently, why does the Mormon concept of tithing differ from early church teachings and even other Christian denominations or even Jewish, the Jewish tradition? Remember, we're quoting Malachi chapter um, 3, verses 8 through 10, and Jews do not interpret that in any way, shape, or form the way that uh, the Latter-day Saints do. Um, you know, and um, you also brought up a couple of other things that were missing off of this. Oh, so... At the same time that Ensign Peak was started, or that Ensign Peak was founded, it's interesting. Wasn't that the same time that we fired all the janitors from the building? Now, I, I think that Ensign Peak was founded in 1997, and I thought that the janitors weren't fired until the mid-2000s. So I could be wrong about that, but I, I could, believe yeah, that, that, that is might the time be frame. But even then, they had more money at that point. And so that was kind of interesting in that we all you know, had to sign up and clean the building. And the same 10 families every time that we do it. And um, anyway, and then... We don't have all their property and their land holdings, and that is substantial. 
they are the largest private owner of the state of Florida, from my understanding. Um, And that's just Florida. They own a lot of land. Yeah, um, we got a lot of this information from, first of all, the the Mormon leaks, which eventually became known as the Truth and Transparency Foundation. All of that information was made public by them. And also it's been elucidated by the Widow's Might Report. And it also doesn't talk about any of the costs of Temple, either construction, maintenance, and this, this, the amount that this, the, that this essay did not, literally did not address, much less answer even one question that I had about church finances. It just, it's not, no, it's, not what it's I was hoping crazy. for. Well, none yeah, of the I essays mean, are what you're hoping for. <laughs> no, they're, <laughs> they're not. They're definitely yeah, not. So they're not. Uh, I, I was hoping for much more. I was uh, because I am always extremely fascinated by church finances. I don't know why. I guess it's just because. I don't know, I'm a nosy person, you know, I paid a lot of tithing and I always like to know where it goes. And I just kind of wish deep down that I knew more about it. And so anything that is even gossipy or even just a little bit speculative, <laughs> I don't know, I devour it. I just, I don't know, maybe I, maybe I need a new set of priorities. You know what I mean? No, Any I last thoughts on this essay? No, I don't think so. I just, it is, it is a little absurd. I do encourage everyone to read the actual essay, how little it says. Yeah, if you come on over to Anchor or Spotify, you can send us a voicemail. We would love to hear your thoughts on the Gospel Topics essay. You can send us a voicemail, which we could play on our next podcast. Now, our next article here is uh, from uh, a very fascinating look here from the dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue is a journal of Mormon studies, basically, and thought and and um, conversations around Mormonism. This is in volume 55, uh, number four. And this was uh, published here just a couple of days ago, really, by Eliza Wells. And the title of the article is Quoted at the Pulpit, Male Rhetoric and Female Authority in 50 Years of General Conference. So she went back and read every single general conference talk, whether it was in the Relief Society priesthood or general session or whatever session that it might be in. And she categorized all of the quotes and assigned those quotes um, gender, either, you know, uh, they, they assigned all of those quotes a gender. And she then she did an analysis on the frequency of what uh, general authorities uh, quote. Do they quote men? Do they quote women more? Who gets quoted more? And what is the frequency and also the circumstances surrounding those citations and did a really in-depth analysis, which we're going to talk about a little bit uh, more here. Now, could you read that first section um, where we get to the analysis there about how men and women are treated differently as far as being quoted in general conference? Yes. Church leaders quote men more than 16 times for every one time that they quote a woman, even taking into account the expected effects of the church's overwhelmingly male scripture and all male priesthood hierarchy. Women are quoted less, cited less, and acknowledged less. Now, how do you feel about that? That's the basic sum up there. How do you how do you feel about that uh, summarization? That that just summarizes my entire faith crisis and exit right there in that line. But I I am not the least bit surprised, and I I really don't think even the most faithful and believing woman, if that was pointed out to her, I really don't think she could refute that. I think she would agree. Now, the first time that a woman um, was even allowed to address a general conference, I believe, was in uh, 1981, right? I think so. I went back and looked at different. I I could be off on it. I mean, just my own kind of viewing uh, all the talks, the conference talks on the insights that are on the church website. And the first time I saw it was 1981. And it was Barbara Smith. I think before that, there were a few women. They had like um, a welfare session or something in the 70s. And I think the releases, General Release Society president would address at those. Um, but like actual general session, general conference, it was 1981. And it was Barbara Smith, the We're- General Release Society president. Now, I believe that sh- that was the same time frame in which women were finally allowed also to 
pray, not in general conference, because it wasn't until, I believe, 2013 until a woman could pray at general conference. But I believe it was yeah, around, uh, around 19... Yes, I believe it was around 1981 where women were also allowed to pray in the local congregation. Because prior to that time, only males could, in sacrament, I'm talking about a sacrament meeting, only male men could give the sacrament meeting prayer. So it was right around that time of 1981 where we saw a couple of these changes. Now, if you look in the analysis here of uh, uh, table number one, these are the most frequent general authority citations from members of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from uh, most of that time frame here. And it says whether they're quoting New Testament, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, Past Prophets, Joseph Smith, U.S. Presidents, hymns, where exactly that they're quoting from. They're, they're categorizing all of the quotations of the sources that general authorities quote from. Now, and it shows how those sources have changed over time. Who is getting quoted more? Who's getting quoted less? So if you look at the percent change there, Sophronia, what do we see um, as far as citations are concerned over time? Who's getting quoted more towards the modern day based on table one? Okay, so if I look at table one, they actually quoted more. Uh, it depends on what it is. Scriptures, they quoted more between 71 through 80. Am I reading that right? And then between mm -hmm. 2011 you... and 2020, um, they quoted less. So as we get towards the modern era, you will see that certain types of general conference quotes are really decreasing in their frequency, and certain of them are much more frequent. For instance, if you look at the current prophet, what do you oh, notice about two, over time about 60 percent? Right. Yeah, so the, the, yes. the prophets, yeah, in U.S. presidents, they've done away with those are done. Um, but right. for profit, yeah, yeah, 260 percent right. increase. That's impressive. Right. Yeah. So general authorities are quoting from the current prophet more and more. They're quoting from U.S. presidents much less. They're quoting from the Old Testament much less. They're quoting from the Book of Mormon and themselves, current members of the First Presidency, current apostles, members of the church. So our reliance in general conference of previous uh, scriptural uh, quotations, that's really going down. And we're emphasizing the current prophet a great deal more than we were. Uh, what, what are your takeaways from uh, table one here? Well, they're also, I'm really surprised by this. Joseph Smith received a 59% increase. That's huge. Yeah. And given yeah. his sister, I mean, given that in that time, people have become more aware of him and his conduct and everything while he was prophet. So I am actually surprised by that. Um, and then also uh, past prophets are, it's a huge increase too. So that's a 38% increase. And also, we notice that in the total time that's allotted in general conference, what do we see about the share of women versus men who are speakers and speaking time in totality in general conference? Well, it depends if it's a women's session or if it's a man's session, if they have a priesthood session or women's session. Um, but by and large, it used to be it wasn't until when did they like in 15 or 14 that they started to do the women had it in the spring and the men had it in the fall or maybe vice versa. Um, but men had a priesthood session every conference. And then the women only had theirs in the fall and it was the weekend before. So it really, so it's not apples to apples, but even still, there's not an increase in women speaking. Right. It's a very, very small percentage of, uh, of total speaking time that is allotted to women. Now, our table number two here is also, they talk about the gendered citations, meaning when you quote women in general conference, what percentage of the time are women quoted versus what percentage of the time that men are quoted? Because obviously we know that in general conference, it's dominated by men. 90% of the speaking time is men, maybe even slightly more. But when it comes to citing other people, what do we see that uh, as far as the percentage of time that men are quoted versus female? in um in table two. Oh, this is fun too. 
So total female, 2.1%. Total male, 35.5%. Well, that's also plus scriptures is 36.1%, which is almost all men. Jesus Christ, that's 20%. Obviously, he's a man. Yeah, male man. scriptures yeah. is 17%. That's men. Past prophets are almost all men. You know, there's a few prophets in the Old Testament, but that's really nothing of that. Apostles, 3.7%. That's all men. And all uh, non-gendered sources is 2%. But total amount of quotations, when we when we look at all of the quotations, which I believe that there was something like 1,100 total quotations in this, only 2% of those quotations are from women. Uh, how do you feel about that number? <laughs> uh, not too pleased about that, but I'm not terribly surprised either. I think it's just it's par for the course. I mean, and this is this is my feeling about it with everything is women are an afterthought. They just are. Within the theology, within the church, you go to the temple. Eve doesn't take part in the creation. Um, she comes on the scene afterwards. Everything is after. And um, everything with adding the women to allow them to pray, you know, things like that. It's after they start to notice and after all of those issues start to pop up. And I did notice, I did want to say one thing about the women praying in general conference. And I'm kind of embarrassed about it. I didn't even notice that women weren't praying until it was pointed out with the thing in, in 13. And I was a member of the ward council at the time. And when I was in there, my then bishop was talking about how, oh, it's so marvelous that they're doing this. And then he gave a backstory about how at the general level, um, I think it was Oaks that held a meeting to see, you know, how they should handle this, if they should have women pray. You know, there was this whole thing before. And I was just sitting there just steam coming out of my ears. And, and then finally he looked at me and said, Oh, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I said, oh, I don't think you want to hear. And he said, no, really? <laughs> and I said, no, I don't think you do. And so he finally asked, and I said, a meeting, you had to have a meeting. You couldn't just do it because it's the right thing to do. I mean, it's just, it's, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. And, and they wonder why women are upset. They wonder why, you know, they're not happy with what they're getting. Um, they're just, the female representation is not part of the core theology. It just says that there's no doctrine on Heavenly Mother. The closest thing we have to that is the song, Oh, My Father, um, that Eliza R. Snow wrote. And and actually, the other close thing is Greek, Greek mythology. So, I mean, I want her to be real, too, but we need some revelation. We need we need doctrine on it. We don't have it. Right. And as as we pointed out in our pre uh, pre podcast call, the last time that that was addressed by it was by Elder Runland, I believe, exactly one year ago, where he addressed yeah. Heavenly Mother in the women's session. And uh, what did he say about that, Sophronia? Oh, he said, let me, I want to make sure I get it right. It is er both arrogant and unproductive uh, to demand right. more information about her. Right. So yeah, and that was interesting too, because we don't even get a member of the first presidency at the women's session; we just get the apostle. And there's always a dude having the last word, always. I don't think any right. women have ever spoken at a priestess session. Pretty sure. I'm not, not that I'm aware of. Not yeah, that I'm aware of. So. You know, and that's another thing that this article points out too is the way that women are quoted. It's not just that women are quoted at a rate that's uh, at least 13 times less than men. It's the way that they're referenced when they are quoted is very interesting to me because I was unaware of it before reading this article. I knew that women had, you know, only 10% of the speaking time and were cited, you know, very, very limitedly, but um, they're verbal citations. So I, I want to read this little section here. It says, when women are quoted in conference talks, women are also far more likely to be the subject of adjectives such as dear, precious, beautiful, lovely, wonderful, 
sweet. So when men are quoted in General Conference, it's Pro President and Prophet Spencer W. Kimball. They cite his full name, they give his authority, and you hear a complete, um, you know, kind of a, they, they really, I don't know, they, they really try to build them up. But as this article points out, when women are quoted in General Conference, it's a sweet sister or a lovely uh, ward member. They're not given a full name. They're not given any type of authority. And they're referenced in, in terms of they're described in terms of their physical appearance, whereas men are not. Well, yeah, I mean, a woman's physical appearance, that is. That's her greatest skill. That's her greatest asset within theology, because the whole goal, her whole crowning achievement is to get married in the temple. And the only way we know you're going to attract a really great return missionary is if you are, you know, a beautiful package that he wants to marry and a sweet, obedient, you know, just wonderful girl. And and that's it. That's all she can aspire to. And they're not they're not counseled to get an education or if they do, at least in my day, um, the education, the options implied were teaching, becoming a school teacher or a nurse, uh, things that would benefit your family. Uh, things you could kind of do on the side, not monopolize your whole time that you could kind of pick up and take out, you know, and not do that. And and I'm not saying those aren't worthy professions. They're marvelous. But those were the only two options and they don't really fit for all women. And I mean, just the whole thing, it's 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 absurd. And also down to patriarchal blessings. I mean, how many women have careers mentioned in their blessings? I don't think they do. They have children and family. Um, I, I think every now and then you might see it and you probably sing it more today, but I think it was probably unheard of. 40 years ago. Um, and anyway, so it's just, it's challenging. This is, this is really the premise with my book. Um, it's how demeaning and how, how women are treated. And also I, there is kind of this implied forbearance for women um, as far as leniency with uh, councils, with judgment. And I don't think that's the case. Uh, I can't prove it. But from what I've seen and heard on different podcasts and stories of people that have now exited the faith, it seems to be women have much harsher judgments imposed upon them, much harsher penalties and discipline than men. Um, and also, you mean, you mean you mean in LDS disciplinary councils? You mean yeah, that's what you yes. mean. Yes, and I can't I can't prove it. Um, but also, but one thing that does kind of imply, I believe all repentance talks are in priesthood sessions. So everything kind of relating to repentance and things like that is is geared to a male audience. And that that tells me that that's a group that they understand sin. They understand that, that type of thing happening. But anyway, it's just it's 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 really complex. But uh, women really are, um, you know, they just they pander to the girls. And it's it's unfortunate. It's they're they're missing out on a whole segment of the workforce. And that could really benefit. I mean, the church could really benefit by utilizing these women to their capacity, and they're not doing it. What I found very interesting when reading through this uh, article here is that even when women do speak in general conference, they also overwhelmingly cite men. It's not just men citing men to men at the priesthood session. When women speak at general conference, they also cite men. There's not a really a significant difference between the way that men and women um, cite uh, gender cite. Why do you think that is? Well, they're, com they're communicating that they know how to sing the anthem. They know the priority. They know who's in charge. And they are telling the upper leadership that they're doing that. And all of them do that on some form. I mean, they, that's why they quote the current prophet so often. They're letting him know, hey, I follow you. I'm ready to be promoted. I'm, I'm worthy of this, this assignment. And um, I mean, we just had that recently with Redland 
and I was appalled that he even did it, but he cited the myopic thing after. So Nelson took the myopic talk and then a year later, a conference later, um, Renlin quoted him, let him know I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, so. Renlin also recently talked about uh, spiritual hyperopia, which uh, myopic is when you're short-sighted and hyperopia is when you're far-sighted. He likes to trot out these um, these kind of dog whistles for President Nelson, you know. Yeah, yeah um, definitely. The, yeah, definitely. Now, even <laughs> when, um, see, I, the argument that some people have is they say that men are quoted more often because men have authority and men have the priesthood. But this article points out something that is very significant about when church leaders cite non-church persons, like poets. Who, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, a poet, you know, they, most most poets, they don't have the priesthood, they're not members, or are authors or politicians or anyone who's not a member of the church. If there was, a, if you could make the argument that says the only reason the general authorities cite other general authorities is because of priesthood, then we should, the, what I would expect to see would be an equal treatment of citing poets, politicians, inspirational figures, things like that. But what we see in general conferences also, no, what we see is, again, an overwhelming citation of men. So it's not really about authority. It's the only thing I can take away is that it's truly deep down just about gender. Any thoughts on that? Um, Yeah. And I just think this is an issue just to society at large. Um, And I there's a book that I read recently, uh, The Invisible Woman, and I highly recommend it. And it's it's fascinating. And the the whole premise of the book is not is not the data that's available, it's the absence of data historically of women. And we know that they were there. It's just, there are so many cases time after time where women aren't a factor, they're just not in there. And so that's how the book goes into it. And it's really interesting and um, goes into something like crash test dummies and how their, their proportion for the average male. And then if a woman, her body is different and, you know, anyway, it's just really, really interesting, but it is, it is a problem. And Historically, women really haven't had a voice. I mean, we haven't always had the privilege, the right to vote. We haven't had all of those things. So it's, um, you know, we're finally coming into our own, but but it, it's an issue. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, if you go all the way back to when the Book of Mormon was written back in 1829, there's only six female characters in the Book of Mormon, and only three of them no, have five, unique names. Five. five. Ooh, okay. Uh, Abish, <laughs> is it? Isabel, the harlot. Soraya. We, we, no, the, we can't just call her Isabel. She's Isabel the harlot. That's her name. Right. Okay. Those are the, those Soraya. are the three who are unique. Uh huh. Those are, that's my name. Those. Those are the three plus Mary, the and mother Eve. of God, Eve. Oh, you know you could that's be it. you could be right. I, no, I know I'm right. I guess no, I noticed this. Okay, when you I got was, me. You got me. No, I noticed this when I was 16. Yeah. No, this, this is all we have, and, and the fact that Isabel got. You know, the label too. Soraya, she's just complains to her husband all the time. That's her whole role. And Abish is the only one that did anything worth anything. And yeah, in 270,000 words, only three unique named characters. And I think Abish is about the only one who actually has any lines of dialogue. So the percentage that we see in General Conference really mirrors what we're seeing in the Book of Mormon, which is, you know, uh, an overwhelming ratio. And, and, and this author reviewed 20 years of priesthood sessions. So in 20 years of priesthood session, that's where men are talking to men. A woman was quoted in 20 years of priesthood sessions. That's 40 sessions. That's 80 hours of priesthood sessions. A woman was only quoted one time to the all-male audience. So so what I get from that is men only quote women. uh, Men quote women only if other women are present. If there are no women around, then it is not worth bringing up a woman into the conversation because it should be men to men. Yes. You got it. And what... 
Yeah, what, basically, there's nothing that a woman can contribute to an all-male priesthood gathering. That's basically no, she, my takeaway from this article. She's homemaking donuts, yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunately the what President Nelson brought that up. The old, he, he trotted that out, that while men are governing the church, while men are leading the church, while men are having revelation and being edified and drawn closer uh -huh. to God, women, women are home in the kitchen baking donuts, and that's their yeah, contribution. No, they don't bake it. They, they fry them, and then they have to clean up the oh. frying mess and... The kitchen never recovers from frying, just so you know. The thing I really liked about this dialogue article, and I would encourage everybody to go and read it, is Miss Wells, did I get the name right? Miss Wells. She was fantastic at the beginning of the article to emphasize the gravity of General Conference. And she said it's not just that it's every six months. She said it's every six months. It comes out printed. You can get it online. You can download it. You know, there's all these ways to access it. But then is a way to ensure that the whole religious congregation understands the talks that were given. It's part of the curriculum for all the lessons within Priest and Relief Society for the next six months. And so anyway, this is, conference is a big deal. There's a lot of optics with it. Uh, they put a, so much work into it. And so they understand the significance and the weight of it. So this isn't something you can just brush under the rug and say, oh, it's just conference. It's not. It's just conference. So it's a big, big deal. The, the author of the article herself concludes it this way. The church's all-male priesthood, male-focused scriptural canon and patriarchal cultural context all play a role in muting women. Now, my own thoughts on this is it would presumably take a revelation to change church structure in order to give women more day-to-day -day, uh, authority in church governance. But it does not take a revelation to change how women are referenced and quoted in general conference. That could be, um, that could be remedied immediately. So mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what I would love to see. Now, that does bring us to our more our Mormon News Roundup poll of the week. And of course, do not take this poll too seriously, but the poll of the week this week is, why aren't women quoted more often in general conference talks? If you come on over to um, Apple Podcasts, you can interact with us on this. And uh, I give you uh, seven choices here, uh, Sophronia, and I'd like you to uh, be our first person to take the poll. And uh, what is your choice number one? Uh, choice number one is, women are too busy slavishly making donuts for their priesthood presiding husbands during priesthood sessions. I, that could be why the, that could be why they're not getting quoted more often. Um, that's too bad. Or how about number two? Because Kate Kelly refuses to channel her tender mercies. I I don't. What what? By the way, what are tender mercies again? What what are those? One just for I our non-Mormon audience. Reminding us of this, so how tender and, okay. and sweet we are. Oh, I guess so. Or how about number three? <laughs> uh, because stubborn feminists refuse to keep sweet, pray, and obey. Yeah, I've heard that. I think that's on the, the side of uh, uh, Warren Jeff's house, by the way. Keep sweet, pray, and obey. Or how about uh, number four? Yes, uh, number, number four. four. It's just like Wendy Nelson's best-selling book. Women should be quoted not even once. Yeah, she did write that book, The Not <laughs> Even Once one. Club. Are you are you familiar with that Not Even Once Club there by Wendy I Nelson, uh, President I Nelson's know. wife? Right. I, I guess know, yeah. they're taking that to the logical next step, which says that women should not be quoted in general conference not that's even once. That's right. That's or, right. Yeah. Or how about number five? Demanding greater female quotation is both arrogant and unproductive. Where have I heard that before? Oh, I think our little boy Renland did that one last time. At the right, women's yes, session. Yeah. At the women's <laughs> session talking <laughs> about mother in heaven. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Or how about, num how about number six? Be probably because LDS women are too bossy and sometimes a little shrill. A little shrill? Where, where, where have I heard that before? Was that Joy Jones? I one of the general the... presidents, yeah, one of the auxiliary presidents. But she said when she was counseling 
how to deal with a priesthood holder that you report to with your auxiliary colleague and to be careful because aren't we sometimes just a little too shrill? Right. Yeah. And it was basically in response to a priesthood authority, uh, uh, her priesthood authority who was um, off the rails of some sort. And how do we get him back on track? And she says, well, maybe you should look at yourself. Maybe you are the one who's a little too shrill. Yeah. Okay, so uh, maybe that's the reason uh, that women are not quoted more in general conference talks. Not sure. Or finally, number seven. When Mormon women stop pushing pregnant sisters down the stairs, they will get they will get quoted more often. That, that was my favorite. So I that is, that one's good. That is terrible. That is terrible. But uh, yeah, that's the old legendary <laughs> story here of Emma Smith. Yeah. yeah. Emma Smith, legendary story. Who, um, uh, who did the Your Polygamy podcast? Uh, oh, sorry. What's her name again? Um, Lindsay Hanson Park. Yeah. Yeah. Lindsay Hanson Park says it's an apocryphal story. Probably didn't happen, but it's a legendary story there. So, but we all uh, yeah, maybe it. if they have to have the women against each other. I guess so. Uh, I don't know. I hope it's not a true story myself. Um, but uh, <laughs> so that's your choice there. Why aren't women more quoted in, often in general conference talks? It's because they push each other down the stairs. You're going yeah, with that as a final answer. Yeah, I love a reference. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Don't take this poll too seriously for our listeners out there. It's mostly a joke poll. Now, our next article here is Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel honoring President Russell M. Nelson. This really hit like a thunderbolt last Sunday. So this is going to take place on Thursday, April 13th, 2023 at 7 o'clock p.m. President Nelson is going to receive the Gandhi King Mandela Peace Prize. Now, uh, so Morehouse, this is going to take place at Morehouse College, which is in uh, Georgia. Uh, I think it's close to Atlanta, which is a historically black college. And it's going to honor the faith leader for, for promoting, quote, a positive social transformation through nonviolent means, end quote. Uh, Sophronia, how do you feel about President Nelson getting the Mandela Peace Prize? I want to know how much it costs. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, usually uh, there's a little exchange rate that goes on that, you know, pay to play um, for those type of awards. And I, this didn't come for free. There's no way. You think that uh, that there's some kind of a back end deal on that, huh? Yes, definitely. definitely. Absolutely. I don't have anything to substantiate that, but I can't I can't argue against it now. So uh, in reading more in the article, we we hear that he is going to be uh, receiving this award. And this is the first time that this particular award has been given. There's been other awards given there at the same place. This is the first time that this particular award is going to be given out. It is for his global efforts in, quote, abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice against any group of God's children and, quote, through nonviolent ways. Now, actually, Sophronia, this week I actually called up Morehouse College and I talked to the Martin Luther King Jr. International Chapel. I called them up on the phone because this, when this first came out, it was on a Facebook post and then there was just a Google document. It took a couple of days for the Deseret News and the Tribune to actually come up with a real article on this. So some people were questioning whether this was real. I called them up on the phone <laughs> and I asked them about it. I said, I want to come and attend this thing. And they confirmed that it is a real deal. Now, I know that you and other people might think that we're just C-list podcasters over here, but I actually did a little bit of journalism for this. And no, I can I confirm that he is going to be so. getting this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is kind of amazing. So, yeah. yeah. So um, what the head of the chapel, um, the dean of uh, the International Chapel at Morehouse, he says that, quote, we wanted to identify Russell M. Nelson and link his name with these great giants. And quote, so it's going to be Gandhi, King, Mandela, Ness Nelson. Um, Sophronia, one of these things is not like the other. You know, that's an old Sesame Street song, right? I know. <laughs> one of these things is not like the other, you know. Yeah, we can all see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And oh, yeah. so uh, this is on the heels. If you think back when President Nelson took over in January of um, 
was it 2018 or 2019? It was, I think it was January 2018. Um, he's locked arms with NAACP leaders since a landmark news conference back in May of 2018 when he jointly called for an end to prejudice from a lobby at the headquarters of the church in Salt Lake City. And it was around that same time frame that the church announced a substantial donation to the NAACP. Now, I can't remember what the dollar figure is on that, but it was a pretty significant donation. He has directed, President Nelson has given $10 million to the NAACP and the United Negro College Fund for scholarships and inner city humanitarian aid. He also gave a grant to um, uh, uh, Brown for $250,000 for uh, that allowed 43 students to visit Ghana last year. So if you're the head of this chapel here at Morehouse College and you've seen that President Nelson has given out tens of millions of dollars in support of these causes, hmm, I can put two and two together. That much I can do. Yeah. No, and I think it's great that the church has donated this money. I think that is worthy cause. I don't, I mean, I'm not really well versed on all who will benefit from that. I mean, just I'm reading from the article, but I, I think it is wonderful. Um, I, I think anytime any underprivileged group can get an education, can get some funding. I mean, what they're doing, I'm sure is definitely worthy and noble. Uh, but um, I, I can tell that they're excited about the optics of it and, and, and they should be. I mean, it is good. But I, I do wish um, the NCAACP would hold their feet to the fire and say, OK, why don't you redraft your essay? And I, we'd like to see an I mean, apology. The, the gospel topics essay. The gospel yeah. topics essay. Yeah. And I think it, I think an apology is warranted. I don't think it's unreasonable. And it's it's a standard that they hold for all of us if we're trying to repent. And I, I agree with that standard. I think we should all acknowledge when we've done something wrong and say, hey, I'm I'm sorry. And I, I don't think, I think they have more to gain by doing that than losing. And I know Oaks has publicly said we don't offer apologies, um, but I think they need to revisit that. Now, President Nelson is not going to attend here. He's going to receive this major Mandela Peace Prize. He's not even going to show up. He's just going to have an audio, a video that's going to play, uh, play and say thanks. And same with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. They are not going to be there for this one. So um, I just wonder, did the Morehouse people, did they read about uh, President Nelson, who was the author of the 2016 Policy of Exclusion, which um, where President Nelson said that he had a revelation from God that uh, babies of gay parents could not get christened, baptized, or even become members of the church? That, to me, does not seem like somebody who is ending prejudice. Um, that's just my humble reading on that. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, but see, he's prophet serum revelator. So anything yeah. that enters his mind, his thought, is a revelation. Yeah, and they cited uh, this uh, particular quote here from President Nelson when he back when he said, let us be clear, we are brothers and sisters, and each of us is a child of a loving father in heaven. His son, the Lord Jesus Christ, invites all to come unto him, black, white, bond, free, male, and female. And then he quoted Second Nephi chapter 26. And I just thought to myself, boy, it is a good thing that those Morehouse guys didn't read in Second Nephi chapter 5 of the same book where uh, God curses the Lamanites with a skin of blackness as a sign of displeasure. Hashtag close call. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I was surprised they even like directed them to the scriptures. I would have gone there. I would have just left that alone. Yeah. Could you read that next uh, section that uh, we discussed earlier about uh, how he's going to be um, in the Hall of Honor? At the ceremony, the school will unveil an oil portrait of the Latter-day Saint president to be hung alongside Abraham Lincoln in the chapel's prestigious Hall of Honor. Right. You know, that's wow. uh, what's your reaction. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? That's long interesting. Over, I, I, I wouldn't have. Only Nelson could get his face next to Lincoln. I mean, really. This it's is long overdue. Doing. That's what. I, yeah, long overdue. Lady is, made it. She made it. <laughs>
Now, so this is what I'm wondering. What's next? Tucker Carlson's going to get buried next to Mother Teresa? Or Donald Trump's going to get the Congressional Medal of Honor? I mean, Lincoln I, I and President Nelson? I think they're Nelson? not far-fetched, considering this. Yeah. I mean, what attitudes of prejudice has President Nelson advocated that we need to abandon? You know what I mean? Because the race in the priesthood ban, that was not under his watch. That was a long time ago. So is there anything new that we're seeing? Is there something different that I'm missing here? That's what I'm wondering. So so I have an interesting thought on this. I mean, he did reduce to our church from three hours to two. Yeah. So that gives all the members 33.3% less of an opportunity to voice anything prejudiced, anything racist. So, yeah. <laughs> that, it's very quantifiable, doing I it. suppose. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> And of course, under under President Nelson, um, the church, it automatically subjects trans persons to membership restrictions, also, which used to be known as disfellowshipment. Um, how is that abandoning attitudes of prejudice? That's it's what I'm wondering. I don't think if they're old men, they just don't consider that. I mean, it's just. I guess not. I guess not. And that's why we have the pre previous winners, Nelson Mandela, you know, just an icon of civil rights. Gorbachev helped end uh, the Cold War, you know, save millions of lives. Desmond Tutu, you know, a Coretta Scott King. You know, it's just this this is this just unprecedented level of the company that President Nelson is going to be joining here is a really exclusive and unbelievably um, impactful club. And I just wonder, yeah. does he belong at the same table as these other incredible icons? You know, well, Wendy certainly agrees. I mean, Wendy, I bet she would say, she would say they should be honored to be with Nelson. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's got Wendy's endorsement, you know, and, and that's why I'm wondering, he's not even going to, he's not even going to show up for this. And that's why I'm wondering, does he have a previously already scheduled deep sea fishing trip? That's what I'm wondering. Why is he not going to be there? I don't know. No, I, mean, I mean, couldn't they take like a whole um, flight, some nurses with him to go with? I mean, I know he's 98, but they have a private I, jet. Presumably. There are, I mean, yeah. yeah, there are plenty. I know plenty. I personally know plenty of um, physicians and nurses that would happily go and attend to Nelson, you know, for free. They fly, fly themselves out there. So, yeah, one, one, one would wonder. Now, he has not left the state of Utah since 20 since mid 2020 in the last three years, except for to dedicate the Washington, D.C. temple. So President Nelson, he really does not travel um, very much, hardly at all outside of he's, the state. So he's still following, now, it, you know, the quarantine guidelines. I guess so. Explain it extra <laughs> safe. Yeah, yeah. But when you have a private, when you presumably, I say presumably, but when you presumably have a private jet, one and and can you know everyone around you can test themselves for COVID, and he's already been vaccinated. You know, one wonders. Um, now the uh, area authority there in Atlanta put out a statement here, Elder Galt of the Area 70, which I um, find to be very remarkable. Do you have that statement? I do. This may be the biggest event that has ever happened for the church in the South. We want to make sure that we fill every seat in the chapel. You may invite friends and neighbors to come, and we encourage all members to come. Uh, what's your reaction to Elder Galt's uh, thoughts here? Well, this is another dog whistle, and he's letting Nelson know that he is ready to fill the apostle seat that Ballard will open for him soon. Ah, very smart. Yeah, yeah, he's a smart cookie. Smart cookie, yeah. that Elder Galt. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, this is why I'm wondering. I'm, I'm wondering, this is the biggest event in church history in the South is a prize for the prophet? Not not baptisms, not temples, not humanitarian efforts like ending homelessness, poverty, clean drinking water, microloans, I don't know, opening medical clinics or healing the sick with priesthood power. A prize for the prophet is the most important event of the restoration in the southern United States? Really? In, in 200 years? This prize? Well, you know, he was a surgeon. And they have God yeah. complexes. 
And then we have profit tier revelator attached to its title. So I'm not surprised of all people to get this. But I do find that surprising. I mean, even I think most people, even if they say we're going to give you an award, they would kind of defer it. Hey, how about we we honor our religion or our group or, or, or something um, instead of just me personally? So I, I, yeah. I do. I, I, I am disappointed in that. Yeah, I mean, uh, who can forget all those marches and sit-ins that President Nelson took part in? Actually, that he led. Wait a minute. Oh, I guess I can't forget those because I'm not familiar with any. March. So all of these rest of these people were tireless advocates. They marched. They put their lives on the line, literally. You know, Nelson Mandela, yeah, yeah, really you know, he was in jail for 30 years. He wasn't in a fortified tax exempt uh, condo in North Temple. <laughs> these people put their lives on the line to advance civil rights. And I'm just not seeing um, a similar level of dedication Uh, for our listeners out there. Just let me know what I'm missing now. And also, what has President Nelson done for world peace? That's what this whole thing is about, is world peace. Uh, What what am I missing here? It's not like he personally funded the 10 million either. Uh, This is the church's money. I mean, he's the steward over it, but he didn't earn that money. He didn't invest that money. He's not making that sacrifice for that money. Um, So I I do find it a little self-serving. And it's it's sad. And I, I, I'm surprised that no one's kind of calling that out. Well, sir, you know, this wasn't you. And I don't know. The church is probably going to announce some kind of monetary scholarships or grant for Morehouse College. Really, it's the members tithing that is really purchasing this prize, which is what we're probably going to see is that monetary thing. So it's really you and me and everybody else who's ever paid tithing. We bought this prize. We own a little bit of this prize that is going to be going to President Nelson, you know? Oh, I, I agree 100%. And I think if they really want to put their money where their mouth is, uh, they'd rename BYU, Brigham Young University. I mean, they he was probably on record the biggest racist uh, profit authority that we've had. Um, and there are so many quotes from him. He was pro-slavery. It was, I mean, it was just appalling. And they've already demonstrated that they know how to rename a church. They can rename a school. Absolutely. President uh, Nelson is on the board of trustees. Um, I think he's the president of the board of trustees for BYU. He could presumably rename not only the university to get rid of that racist uh, legacy that Berkman left us, but he could also rename the buildings and do a lot of other things at BYU to show his commitment to diversity. Now, the, this last year, the BYU did, uh, Provo, the campus, did um, finally have an office of inclusion and diversity, but that is a very small step along the path of what President Nelson could do. Um, I mean, he could do a lot of things. Let me let me just talk about a couple of things that he could do in my mind to make him a more of a champion for um, uh, make him more worthy of this particular prize. He could decanonize the racist scriptures, like in the Book of Mormon, which we already discussed in Second Nephi chapter five, yeah. and the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham. He could decanonize those. He could apologize for the church's past racist policies, doctrines, and practices. He could meaningfully change the church's policies on uh, anti-LGBTQ persons. Um, you know, he he could. For at BYU, he could advocate the hiring of more diverse uh, workforce, um, more women, persons of color, LGBTQ fa- faculty and staff. He could a- advocate for more diversity training for employees or champion new minority-friendly curriculum across BYU campuses. I mean, so funny, the Black Menaces, they don't even have their own room on campus when most campuses have a diversity building that is set aside for persons of color or women or whatever it is. There's a lot that President Nelson could do by himself right now um, that he hasn't done. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. And it wouldn't... in the They've demonstrated they can do these things quickly if they want to, if the desire is there.
You bet. Now, what's interesting to me is that we did not hear about this from the church news first. Now, finally, the Deseret News just yesterday, seven days after it leaked, finally put out an announcement. But I find this to be very remarkable because usually the church news is very propaganda. If it is a positive article, the church news is usually first front and center on this. But all we have is a Deseret News article that was quite late to the game. Why do you think there was no church news article about this prize? I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out, too. Um, usually they, they do trump their horn um, a lot. Yeah. So I am surprised by that. I don't know, maybe because people would go into uh, this kind of thing of what exactly have you done um, and then go into the money thing with the 10 million and well, but this isn't your money. So why are you getting this prize? Um, why isn't the church getting the prize, you know, kind of thing? Um, so so I don't know. Or maybe they just didn't communicate to their PR team. I, I don't know. Maybe someone lost their job over this one. I don't know. That's a very good question. That's what I'm wondering about. Now, I'm not too political of a person, but I want to put these three uh, three things in uh, perspective and see which one do you think is worse. President Obama getting the Nobel Peace Prize only nine months into office, nine months he got the, the Nobel Peace Prize, or Joseph Smith enshrined in the World Peace Dome in India, or President Nelson receiving the Mandela Gandhi Peace Prize. Which one of those three do you think um, was is worse? It's a coin toss. I mean, comes up okay. tails no matter how you do it, but it's a coin toss. Yeah. They're all pretty now, that's a, Yeah, he's getting this prize. Should, should President Nelson also get enshrined in solid gold in that statue in India's World Peace Dome right alongside Gandhi and uh, Jesus and Joseph Smith? Is that the next stop? Definitely. I would, I would love to see that. Definitely. Actually. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, <laughs> a couple last, couple last thoughts. See, President Nelson, prior to the lifting of the race and the priesthood ban, President Nelson was in high church leadership positions at no time that I'm aware of. And he also wrote books um, during this time. At no time did he call for the repeal of that racist ban. He was not a champion for diversity prior to the ban being lifted when he could have said, you know what, I'm a member of the church and I don't want to stand for this. Somebody who took that kind of line and said, I'm going to buck my authority, buck the church's authority and call out the presidents and the leadership of the church and say, what you're doing is wrong. I, I, you know, racism has no place in our society at no point in time. Prior to that ban, did he say one word in opposition to the ban? And he had been a member of the church. I know he was a convert. I want to say he was baptized when he was 13, I believe. Um, so he'd been a member of the church, I don't know, for 50 years prior to that time. Did he say one word in opposition to one of the most racist um, religious um, constructions in modern day America? You know what I mean? No, no, he did. Well, you don't get to be prophet without being a company man. You exactly. have to toe the line. You do exactly. They're, the one thing they have proven is the ones in leadership are incapable of creative thought. And, and also, he was he was also silent on the church's opposition of interracial marriage. You know, he didn't at, the, at no point in time again did he say, you know what, interracial marriage, um, we shouldn't be against that. That's uh, really racist and it's wrong. Uh, there was all of these opportunities for President Nelson to come out as a champion for diversity, for pluralism, for feminism, for equal rights, for um, the reduction of racism. And at every turn, he was mute. He was silent. He did nothing or worse, perpetuated, um, you know, uh, you know, especially with the policy of exclusion, perpetuated additional discriminatory practices. With the, dis with the exclusion, he trumped it up to be a revelation, too. It wasn't just a policy. Um, exactly. Later, when he got pushback, he called it a revelation. So, I mean, he really... I mean, that was his soul that he died on for a lot of a lot of people that left the church over that. Yeah. Now, if you look in the uh, comments section of the Salt Lake Tribune's article, you couple, got a couple of good comments here. Um, let me read one to you. Boy, am I learning new things every day. Money can buy an honorary title and Jesus is a tax cheat. 
<laughs> that's harsh. That's harsh. That is harsh and succinct. Uh, another one from the comment section. How insulting to people who actually work to make the world a better place. That 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 is that is tough too. And here's the third one that I found. Yes, let's bravely honor the unaccountable head of a racist, sexist, and homophobic tax cheating mega corporation. Yeah. To put it mildly, these pe the people in this comment section are not on board with this particular prize. That's why it wasn't uh, released. Those comments. That's why maybe, they didn't do it. Maybe so. That's why I'm wondering, Sofroni, is it too late to get Brigham Young also nominated for this award? You know, I'm asking for a friend here. You know, do you think we, he could be up next? Or how about Marky Peterson? You know, perhaps he can go into that hall right next to uh, Gandhi. You know what I mean? Get a nice oil portrait. Or maybe not. Yeah, yeah. Now, and this is, this, is, this is very unconfirmed here, but I have a lot of sources, as you may know, Sophronia. And I've got reports from Beyond the Veil in an unidentified celestial room from a temple matriarch that she claims that Jane Manning is just absolutely thrilled about this award. You know what I mean? <laughs> Definitely. Okay, our next article here is on PewResearch.org. Now, this was a poll that was released on March 15, 2023, and it says Americans feel more positive than negative about Jews, mainline Protestants, and Catholics. So this is a, really a, a likability survey, and there's been a couple of these that have recently come out. And obviously, Pew Research Center is one of the most trusted um, of the of the research centers. And they asked about uh, they asked Americans about how they view Jews, mainline Protestants, Catholics, and Mormons. And what did we find? Um, what did Pew Research find when it came to the likability of Mormons in America? They came dead last. Dead last. Dead wow. last, yes. Yes, it goes yeah, so, right to say the order of the religion. Sure. So uh -huh. we have Jews, mainline Protestants, evangelical Christians, atheists, Muslims, Mormons at the end. Wow. I mean, they're 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 somewhat a uh, very somewhat favorable rating is very very is the lowest out of all of them. They only have a very very small likability rating of only fifteen percent, and their unfavorability rating is also the highest. So they have the least amount of people who like them and the most amount of people who dislike them. This is a really not a good poll for um, <laughs> for Mormons. Sophronia, how do you explain this? Well, you know, the Holy Ghost glow doesn't make you likable. It doesn't make you popular. It just doesn't. We're not supposed well, to maybe be this, popular. That's the sign of a, the church being true. Is this survey is a sign of the church's uh, authenticity and truthfulness? Yes, definitely. If, the, the gospel's true. if you think about the if you think about the 14 fundamentals of following the prophets, remember uh, prophets were never supposed to be popular, and I guess members of the church they they're not popular either. No, because um, it's just you can't be popular. Yeah. But do you think that uh, President Nelson's prize is going to raise up the likability? You know, if we just oh, get a couple more of these. Uh, definitely. That's, That's going to help out. Tip us over scale. They're really going to notice that. Uh, yes. <laughs> I do wonder about that. And uh, I find it to be a very sad. Uh, it's just it's just very sad to me. And you can't blame this on the fact that not that very there are very few people actually know members of the church because that's factored in as well. You can't just say that, you know, there, there's see, there's a lot more Mormons in the United States than there are Jews. The amount of people who know a Mormon and the amount of people who know a Jew are about the same. And the problem is, is that Jews are very, very favorably looked at. And only 6% of people don't like Jews, whereas the, the numbers are just absolutely abysmal for Mormons. And it's really a sad commentary. Is, is there anything seriously, in all seriousness, Sophronia, what can, what can members of the church do to, I don't know, get, get, get better uh, favorability? What, why is it so low and what can be done about it? You know, this is actually something I've known about for a while. Um, this would come up periodically, this poll, I think they conduct it every now and then because it would always come up when I was serving with public affairs and they would talk about it and they would address in the public affair meetings, you know, what can we do? And the answer seemed to be always, I mean, my answers never were 
taken with any weight, but the answer seemed to be to do more service and have positive articles about the service that they do. Anyway, that was the answer, at least for me. You know, the thing about it is that the church owns its own, it owns Bonneville Communications. It has KSL. It has the church news. It has Deseret News. It pumps out more positive articles, I think, than it has uh, so, uh, curated social media feeds where all of the leaders of the church are on. They're on Twitter. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. Um, I mean, even some of them are even on TikTok. I mean, they, they pump out more positive press than, than per capita than, than any of these other religions. Yeah, I, I don't know why they're still harping that because clearly it's not working. I mean, it's the definition of insanity. So I don't, I don't understand. So it's, it's you also said service. You said service could help out, but the church literally has more manpower and service hours again per capita, especially with a full-time missionary force, with the service missionaries, with the senior missionaries, and with Mormons are much more likely to be service service oriented. I think there was a poll a little while back that says that the average Mormon does a hundred hours of community service per year, whereas the average American only does something like four. So, I mean, they are serving more than anyone else. And so it seems like your two solutions, I'm not trying to criticize you. I'm just pointing out, you said the solutions are better PR, but the church has the best and more service and the church does more than anything. None of these things are seem to be helping. No, they're not working. They're not working. But I can tell you what I brought up. I actually did bring up, I would quote um, Julie Hank sometimes and I bring her thoughts to the meeting and things that she would address like, uh, the number of women that are speaking in conference. And then I also brought up the things that were said to my, that are said to me, but um, never said to my husband and at church. And, and I, I did say, I said, you know, I think these are things that we should address and, and talk about in our meeting. And instead it was kind of turned back to me of, you know, I would just tell people to mind their own business and I wouldn't worry about it. And I said, no, this isn't me. I didn't write this. This is just, this is something that's getting some steam anyway. They don't want to hear it. They just, this is what they know. They know service. They know keeping their PR machine going. And that's what they're going to stick with. Uh, you know, obviously, a, a couple of thoughts from my own perspective here. If the church would tap into the Enzyme Peak Fund, which is probably, according to the last Widows Might Report, is sitting at $160 billion. If you were to tap into that and eradicate or put a significant dent into hunger or women's shelters or domestic violence prevention, or, um, you know, microloans in Africa or vaccinations. I know the church does a little bit, but I mean, I'm talking about a significant tapping into the church's resources, um, a, a free education, uh, grants, grants for, for folks, you know, housing, um, affordability for um, medicine, access to medicine, medical clinics, uh, rape shelters, you name it, domestic violence centers, all of this. If the church were to tap into that $160 billion, you would see, in my opinion, the likability go up significantly than where we're at. And that's the only thing it seems like to me that the church hasn't tried. I, I, and I don't know why they don't, because I mean, people would, in, of course you would feel loyalty to them and then you would feel grateful for them if they were doing something like this. I mean, we all know that the Bill or Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation contributed heavily to obtaining a COVID vaccine. They had that opportunity. They had the money then. We all knew they had the money then and they didn't. So I, I just, I, I, I don't understand it. I mean, there are needs out there. They have the ability to meet said needs and just can't seem to do it. Yeah, the likability would certainly go up if we did that. There's one other thing that I think would increase the church's likability, and that's to um, reduce its profile as far as negative political um, amicus briefs and things along those lines, especially the church's position on LGBTQ being so it's different. See, because evangelical, a lot of evangelicals are even farther out to the right 
on LGBTQ issues in the church. And yet that doesn't, hasn't harmed their likability in the same way that it has for Mormons. And the reason is, is because a lot of those evangelical churches, they're not funding lobbyists and bills and putting millions of dollars behind their campaigns like Proposition 8. When the church is so out front with these issues, um, it, it's really the likability factor really goes down. So if the church wanted to take it easy on those particular issues, I think you would see the likability rise. I agree. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Now that does bring us to our final news article of the week, which is a fascinating article here. And this was written, um, this was on the Religious News Service by uh, Jana Reese. And this was published on March 15, 2023. So all aboard the Mormon Women's History Cruise. And so cruising is, I said, that's right. It's a Mormon Women's History Cruise. I've never seen anything. Have you ever seen something like this before? I, I you know, I don't follow in these circles, so I, I can't say if it's happened before, but I'm not aware of it. I, I, this is the first time I've heard of it. And I thought it was a joke when you first said it to me, but I guess no, it's legit. no. Yeah. So it's on the Royal Caribbean independence of the seas and it's only $627 for a four day cruise. And it's put on by a couple of very popular folks here. We have uh, uh, Laurie uh, McFly Kip. I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong. Dr. Kip here. We also have Amy Hoyd, Dr. Hoyd. And then we have uh, Dr. Deloach as well, who are going to be hosting a number of sessions for this Mormon women history cruise. They've, uh, I think they've uh, secured 60, uh, 60 seats. Um, as far as this cruise is concerned, uh, do you think this is going to take off? Do you think this is going to be popular? Yeah, it's going to be just like Education Week. <laughs> but yeah. on the sea. On the sea. Yeah, it's a yeah. floating Education Week. Absolutely. Education Week is extremely popular at BYU. That's you know, it right. happens every summer. It is. It is. For so, sure. You know, they just need another outlet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They also have yeah. at BYU. Also, don't they have a, a women's week as well? Um, or uh, do I have that wrong? Is it just an education week, or do they, they have? A... They have education weekend. I think there is like a women's thing. Maybe it's just a weekend. Okay. Um, but I know education week is is targeted to women. Sorry, my dog kind of joined us. Um, but education week uh, is primarily focused and targeted to women. I do know that. They have a lot of women's sessions in education week, I think. A lot yeah. of women-focused sessions, for sure. So yeah, they're mm -hmm. trying to capitalize on that. And it's leaving out of Fort Lauderdale here. And uh, they hope that this is going to become a tradition, I guess, probably in the same way as education week, which I find to be very interesting. According to the article, Jenna Reese says that she has booked. She says that she has booked this, um, yes. booked the slot. So. <laughs> So, well, now, my question I, is, is there going to be a men's, a men's Mormon history cruise? Because that, that's um, just not I, fair if you don't do the men too. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know It'd if you'll like get the, the temple. same level. They're two separate. They can't be on the same boat. You know, they have to be separate. Well, they, well, they can, can be on the same boat. One needs to be on the starboard side. One needs to yes, be on the port that's side. That's right. That's right. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, but this is breaking news here, Sophronia. I have obtained... Um, through my incredible sources here, the leaked itinerary that goes along with this particular cruise. And I think you're going to see some really interesting sessions here, which uh, um, let's go over that, those itinerary of this four-day cruise here. Are you ready for this? Oh, yeah. You know it. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Okay. So I need, I need you to help me. I need you to help me with this itinerary. So uh, day one, what are, what are we studying on day one on this Mormon women's history cruise here, Sophronia? Okay. All about Fanny Alger. Oh, nice. So what do we get in the morning session here um, for the morning session on day one? What exactly did Emma see through the crack in the barn anyway? Yeah, I, I, that inquiring yeah. minds want to know. That, that's a session. Yeah. Yes, celestializing. Well, that would explain exactly, exactly what, what that is. <laughs> yeah, that's a session I can really sink my teeth into. And what about the afternoon session of day one? Fabulous Fanny, first plural wife uh, or smoking hot mistress. 
why it doesn't matter it never did yeah why it doesn't matter and never did it doesn't matter <laughs> right right yeah first uh, first plural wife or smoking hot mistress I, I i don't know the answer and if i go to that session i will find that out and that's also in the evening session what what are we learning about in the evening of day one the secret that lucifer doesn't want you to know how the release society is actually run by men Mm, I get, yeah, a lot, a lot of truth in there. Now, our day number two here is spiritual wifery versus celestial marriage, revisiting John C. Bennett's inspired counsel. So um, what are we getting in the morning session of day two there, Sophronia? Uh, spotlight time, pros and cons of becoming the 42nd wife of Hebrew C. Kimball. Right. Now, I can think of a lot of cons that go along oh, with becoming yeah. the 42nd wife. I can think of the cons. The pros, that's, that's going to be a little bit harder. That's a little uh, more challenging. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, he did have 40. The only con that I could think of, this is this is the only con. Now, he had 43 wives. If you're the 42nd one, you're a leg up a little bit on that 43rd one. So that is a pro. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. Okay. That's the only one I can Wait come up with. Look at okay? the glass half full. Oh, good job. I, I don't know. I, I'm, 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 I'm struggling here. I'm trying here. Now, afternoon <laughs> of day two, what are we getting on uh, the afternoon session of day two? The 1891 Temple Lot Affidavit. The surprising answer about what carnal knowledge means and how the answer builds faith. Yeah, remember those Temple Lot affidavits where, um, you know, the, the wives of Joseph Smith had to talk about uh, uh, very intimate matters? You know, yeah, Victorian and how the era. Answer... Yeah, this is so oh, exactly. yeah, I can't believe they actually most, did that. Yeah, but the most important thing is the answer. It does build faith there, Sophronia. And finally, we have the evening session here. Uh, what are we getting on that day two evening session? How John Taylor administered, how the John Taylor administration generously removed the blessing and anointing power to midwives, mothers, and sisters and made the practice villainous. Um, you know, that does sound like a little bit of a downer. You know what I mean? Yeah, they used to do that with the labor. As women labored, they would anoint them and they bless them. And he didn't yeah, that's that. true. That so. was, yeah, that's true. Now, day three, priesthood power spotlight. How Satan tempts weak sisters in Zion to crave something that we can never hope to deserve nor understand. I think that's <laughs> maybe sponsored by Elder Remlin now that I'm thinking about it. I think so. Maybe he's going to speak again. Could be a guest speaker. Now, what do we get on day three in the morning session? As long as we have a handsome, strong return missionary nearby, that's all we need. It's nice if he's handsome. Now, it doesn't really matter if he's handsome, but it does. It makes it nicer. That, that Which just makes sure. it a much more pleasant experience. Yeah. That's true. That's true. I wouldn't know. Now, in the afternoon <laughs> session of day three, what do we get? How to avoid shrillness and look to your plumber bishop for every spiritual and temporal need. Yeah. Some pro tips on that shrillness. We got to turn that shrillness down uh, several yeah, notches. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Now, the evening Keep session, uh, this is what we get. How, how relying on your 11-year-old deacon son to access God's love is a blessing in disguise. Yeah, that's that's nice, you know, since he has the most authority in the house sometimes, you know. Uh -huh. and, and finally, day four, our final one here. Um, this, this, is, this is, in my opinion, is the most important day. What, what are we uh, looking at on day four? Stroll, down, stroll with us down memory lane by examining the role of women in church governance through the years. Don't miss Ooh, this is going to be interesting. I'm, I'm very fascinated with this. And in the morning session, um, wh what are we talking about? Uh, not applicable. Oh, oh, yeah, I guess. I guess. Yeah. What about the afternoon session? Not going to happen. Oh, yeah, I guess it's kind of be a light a day four is kind of a light day because, you know, you're on your way back. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and finally, yeah, the dinner session is women praying in general conference only 183 years after the church was founded. Yeah. So uh, examining the role of women in church governance through the years, that's kind of kind of be a light session, I guess, you know, take it easy. Yeah. 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 Not, not, not to too much subject matter. Yeah, yeah. Not too much yeah. subject matter there. And finally, we do have an optional shore excursion, which I think sounds absolutely fantastic. Um, what are we doing on the shore excursion on this one? Book of Mormon archaeology time. Ooh. Let's dust off those metal detectors and hunt for the lost city of Zarahemla. 
hashtag a voice from the dust. That's something that looks that's very exciting. And it says become a part of history. Two hundred dollar fee not included. Now, it does have some short, uh, important short excursion notes that go along with that. What are those notes that go with that short excursion? Um, if we actually want to find anything, please fast and pray before disembarking and pay a full tithing and fast offering. Remember, mm -hmm. absolutely no pants or porn shoulders during the short excursion. We don't want anyone to get the wrong impression. Yeah, we we have high standards. It sounds like they yeah, have high yeah. standards for this. Yeah, you know, uh, no pants. Uh, that's still a thing some places, isn't it? It's just amazing. <laughs> so, I think, I think so. so. Only one piece swimwear. Modest is high. Absolutely. Remember that. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, just a real quick anecdote. My wife was uh, attending the temple a, a little while ago, and um, she was wearing pants to the temple, saw her Relief Society president, who was a little bit older, Relief Society president, as my wife was walking in, said, oh, hey, you're at the temple today. And my wife goes, yeah. And she goes, oh, and wearing pants. And then just left it at that. That's it. That's the end of the conversation. <laughs> like, that's all that was some... needed. She cast that, that's it. it. Yeah. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's all you get. Now, um, that's uh, we have a couple of uh, guest shows coming up here. Uh, next week, we have 21st Century Saints on next week, which is uh, going to be very, very interesting. And we also have Jonathan Streeter from Thoughts and Things and Stuff, who's going to be on next month. Sophronia, uh, thanks so much for coming on to the Mormon News Roundup with us. Thanks for having me. I loved it. Thank you so much. We wish you the very best with your book. And uh, uh, we'll be looking forward to hopefully uh, when you become a, a world famous author, you'll be able to say that it was the Mormon News Roundup that, uh, you know, was a small step in the way. So we wish you the very best. Thanks so much for Thank being you. a Patreon supporter. And uh, shout out to Weird Ammo for this uh, episode's music. Thanks so much for being with us. And remember, remember, no unhallowed hand can stop this podcast from progressing. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, the Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's Church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a being with no moral constraints. My number one goal is to hurt the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.